Chapter One, Part Three of the Subjection of Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by M. B. The Subjection of Women by John Stuart Mill. Chapter One, Part Three. At present, in the more improved countries, the disabilities of women are the only case, save one, in which laws and institutions take persons at their birth, and ordain that they shall never in all their lives be allowed to compete for certain things. The one exception is that of royalty. Persons still are born to the throne. No one, not even of the reigning family, can ever occupy it, and no one even of that family can, by any means but the course of hereditary succession, attain it. All other dignities and social advantages are open to the whole male sex. Many, indeed, are only attainable by wealth, but wealth may be striven for by any one, and is actually obtained by many men of the very humblest origin. The difficulties to the majority are indeed insuperable without the aid of fortunate accidents. But no male human being is under any legal ban. Neither law nor opinion superadd artificial articles to the natural ones. Royalty, as I have said, is accepted. But in this case everyone feels it to be an exception, an anomaly in the modern world in marked opposition to its customs and principles, and to be justified only by extraordinary special expediences which, though individuals and nations differ in estimating their weight, unquestionably do in fact exist. But in this exceptional case, in which a high social function is, for important reasons, bestowed on birth instead of being put up to competition, all free nations contrive in substance to subscribe to the principal form which they nominally derogate, for they circumscribe this high function by conditions avowedly intended to prevent the person to whom it ostensibly belongs from really performing it, while the person to whom it is performed, the responsible minister, does obtain the post by a competition from which no full-grown citizen of the male sex is legally excluded. The disabilities, therefore, to which women are subject from the mere fact of their birth are the solitary examples of the kind in modern legislation. In no instance except this, which comprehends half the human race, are the higher social functions closed against any one by a fatality of birth which no exertions, and no change of circumstances, can overcome. For even religious disabilities, besides that in England and in Europe they have practically almost ceased to exist, do not close any career to the disqualified person in case of conversion. The social subordination of women thus stands out an isolated fact in modern social institutions, a solitary breach of what has become their fundamental law, a single relic of an old world of thought and practice exploded in everything else, but retained in the one thing of most universal interest, as if a gigantic dolmen, or a vast temple of Jupiter Olympius, occupied the site of St. Paul's and received daily worship while the surrounding Christian churches were only resorted to on fasts and festivals. 
this entire discrepancy between one social fact and all those which accompany it and the radical opposition between its nature and the progressive movement which is the boast of the modern world and which has successively swept away everything else of an analogous nature surely affords to a conscientious observer of human tendencies serious matter for reflection it raises a prima facie presumption on the unfavorable side far outweighing any which custom and usage could in such circumstances create on the favorable and should at least suffice to make this like the choice between republicanism and royalty a balanced question the least that can be demanded is that the question should not be considered as prejudged by existing fact and existing opinion but open to discussion on its merits as a question of justice and expediency the decision on this as on any of the other social arrangements of mankind depending on what an enlightened estimate of tendencies and consequences may show to be most advantageous to humanity in general without distinction of sex and the discussion must be a real discussion descending to foundations and not resting satisfied with vague and general assertions it will not do for instance to assert in general terms that the experience of mankind has pronounced in favor of the existing system experience cannot possibly have decided between two courses so long as there has only been experience of one if it be said that the doctrine of equality of the sexes rests only on theory it must be remembered that the contrary doctrine also has only theory to rest upon all that is proved in its favor by direct experience is that mankind have been able to exist under it and to attain the degree of improvement and prosperity which we now see but whether that prosperity has been attained sooner or is now greater than it would have been under the other system experience does not say on the other hand experience does say that every step in improvement has been so invariably accompanied by a step made in raising the social position of women that historians and philosophers have been led to adopt their elevation or debasement as on the whole the surest test and most correct measure of the civilization of a people or an age through all the progressive period of human history the condition of women has been approaching nearer to equality with men this does not of itself prove that the assimilation must go on to complete equality but it assuredly affords some presumption that such is the case neither does it avail anything to say that the nature of the two sexes adapts them to their present functions and position and renders these appropriate to them standing on the ground of common sense and the constitution of the human mind i deny that any one knows or can know the nature of the two sexes as long as they have only been seen in their present relation to one another if men had ever been found in society without women or women without men or if there had been a society of men and women in which the women were not under the control of the men something might have been positively known about the mental and moral differences which may be inherent in the nature of each what is now called the nature of women is an eminently artificial thing the result of forced repression in some directions 
unnatural stimulation in others. It may be asserted without scruple that no other class of dependents have had their character so entirely distorted from its natural proportions by their relation with their masters. For if conquered and slave races have been, in some respects, more forcibly repressed, whatever in them has not been crushed down by an iron heel has generally been let alone, and in left with any liberty of development, it has developed itself according to its own laws. But in the case of women, a hothouse and stove cultivation has always been carried on of some of the capabilities of their nature, for the benefit and pleasure of their masters. Then, because certain products of the general vital force sprout luxuriantly and reach a great development in this heated atmosphere, and under this act of nurture and watering, while other shoots from the same root, which are left outside in the wintry air, with ice purposely heaped all round them, have a stunted growth, and some are burnt off with fire and disappear, men, with that inability to recognize their own work which distinguishes the unanalytic mind, indolently believe that the tree grows of itself in the way they have made it grow, and that it would die if one half of it were not kept in a vapor-bath and the other half in the snow. Of all the difficulties which impede the progress of thought, and the formation of well-grounded opinions on life and social arrangements, the greatest is now the unspeakable ignorance and inattention of mankind in respect to the influences which form human character. Whatever any portion of the human species now are, or seem to be, such, it is supposed, they have a natural tendency to be. Even when the most elementary knowledge of the circumstances in which they have been placed clearly points out the causes that made them what they are. Because a cottier deeply in arrears to his landlord is not industrious, there are people who think that the Irish are naturally idle. Because constitutions can be overthrown when the authorities appointed to execute them turn their arms against them, there are people who think the French incapable of free government. Because the Greeks cheated the Turks, and the Turks only plundered the Greeks, there are persons who think that the Turks are naturally more sincere. And because women, as is often said, care nothing about politics except their personalities, it is supposed that the general good is naturally less interesting to women than to men. History, which is now so much better understood than formerly, teaches another lesson. If only by showing the extraordinary susceptibility of human nature to external influences, and the extreme variableness of those of its manifestations which are supposed to be most universal and uniform. But in history, as in travelling, men usually see only what they already had in their own minds, and few learn much from history, who do not bring much with them to its study. Hence, in regard to that most difficult question, what are the natural differences between the two sexes, a subject on which it is impossible in the present state of society to obtain complete and correct knowledge, while almost everybody dogmatizes upon it, almost all neglect and make light of the only means by which any partial insight can be obtained into it. This is an analytic study of the most important department of psychology, 
the laws of the influence of circumstances on character. For however great and apparently ineradicable the moral and intellectual differences between men and women might be, the evidence of their being natural differences could only be negative. Those only could be inferred to be natural which could not possibly be artificial. The residuum, after deducting every characteristic of either sex which can admit of being explained from education or external circumstances. The profoundest knowledge of the laws of the formation of character is indispensable to entitle anyone to affirm even that there is any difference, much more what the difference is, between the two sexes considered as moral and rational beings. And since no one, as yet, has that knowledge, for there is hardly any subject which, in proportion to its importance, has been so little studied. No one is thus far entitled to any positive opinion on the subject. Conjectures are all that can at present be made. Conjectures, more or less probable, according as more or less authorized by such knowledge as we yet have of the laws of psychology, as applied to the formation of character. Even the preliminary knowledge, what the difference between the sexes now are, apart from all question as to how they are made what they are, is still in the crudest and most incomplete state. Medical practitioners and physiologists have ascertained to some extent the differences in bodily constitution, and this is an important element to the psychologist. But hardly any medical practitioner is a psychologist. Respecting the mental characteristics of women, their observations are of no more worth than those of common men. It is a subject on which nothing final can be known. So long as those who alone can really know it, women themselves, have given but little testimony, and that little mostly suborned. It is easy to know stupid women. Stupidity is much the same all the world over. A stupid person's notions and feelings may confidently be inferred from those which prevail in the circle by which the person is surrounded. Not so with those whose opinions and feelings are an emanation from their own nature and faculties. It is only a man here and there who has any tolerable knowledge of the character even of the women of his own family. I do not mean of their capabilities. These nobody knows, not even themselves because most of them have never been called out. I mean their actually existing thoughts and feelings. Many a man thinks he perfectly understands women, because he has had amatory relations with several, perhaps with many of them. If he is a good observer, and his experience extends to quality as well as quantity, he may have learned something of one narrow department of their nature. An important department, no doubt, but of all the rest of it, few persons are generally more ignorant, because there are few from whom it is so carefully hidden. The most favorable case which a man can generally have for studying the character of a woman is that of his own wife. For the opportunities are greater, and the cases of complete sympathy not so unspeakably rare. And in fact this is the source from which any knowledge worth having on the subject has, I believe, generally come. But most men have not had the opportunity of studying in this way more than a single case. Accordingly, one can, to an almost laughable degree, infer what a man's wife is like from his opinions about women in general. 
To make even this one case yield any result, the woman must be worth knowing, and the man not only a competent judge, but of a character so sympathetic in itself, and so well adapted to hers, that he can either read her mind by sympathetic intuition, or has nothing in himself which makes her shy of disclosing it. Hardly anything, I believe, can be more rare than this conjunction. It often happens that there is the most complete unity of feeling and community of interests as to all external things, yet the one has as little admission into the internal life of the other as if they were common acquaintances. Even with true affection, authority on the one side and subordination on the other prevent perfect confidence. Though nothing may be intentionally withheld, much is not shown. In the analogous relation of parent and child, the corresponding phenomenon must have been in the observation of every one. As between father and son, how many are the cases in which the father, in spite of real affection on both sides, obviously to all the world does not know or suspect parts of the son's character familiar to his companions and equals? The truth is that the position of looking up to another is extremely unpropitious to complete sincerity and openness with him. The fear of losing ground in his opinion or in his feelings is so strong that even in an upright character there is an unconscious tendency to show only the best side, or the side which, though not the best, is that which he most likes to see. And it may be confidently said that thorough knowledge of one another hardly ever exists, but between two persons who, besides being intimates, are equals. How much more true, then, must all this be when the one is not only under the authority of the other, but has it inculcated on her as a duty to reckon everything else subordinate to his comfort and pleasure, and to let him neither see nor feel anything coming from her except what is agreeable to him? All these difficulties stand in the way of a man's obtaining any thorough knowledge even of the one woman whom alone, in general, he has sufficient opportunity of studying. When we further consider that to understand one woman is not necessarily to understand any other woman, that even if he could study many women of one rank or of one country, he would not thereby understand women of other ranks or countries, and even if he did, they are still only the women of a single period of history, we may safely assert that the knowledge which men can acquire of women, even as they have been and are, without reference to what they might be, is wretchedly imperfect and superficial, and always will be so, until women themselves have told all that they have to tell. And this time has not come nor will it come otherwise than gradually. It is but of yesterday that women have either been qualified by literary accomplishments or permitted by society to tell anything to the general public. As yet, very few of them dare tell anything which men, on whom their literary success depends, are unwilling to hear. Let us remember in what manner, up to a very recent time, the expression, even by a male author, of uncustomary opinions, or what are deemed eccentric feelings, usually was, and in some degree still is, received, and we may form some faint conception under what impediments a woman, 
who is brought up to think custom and opinion her sovereign rule, attempts to express in books anything drawn from the depths of her own nature. The greatest woman who has left writings behind her sufficient to give her an eminent rank in the literature of her country thought it necessary to prefix as a motto to her boldest work, un homme pour braver l'opinion, une femme doit s'y soumettre. Footnote. Title page of Madame de Stel's Delphine. End footnote. The greater part of what women write about women is mere sycophancy to men. In the case of unmarried women, much of it seems only intended to increase their chance of a husband. Many, both married and unmarried, overstep the mark and inculcate a servility beyond what is desired or relished by any man, except the very vulgarest. But this is not so often the case as, even at a quite late period, it still was. Literary women are becoming more free-spoken and more willing to express their real sentiments. Unfortunately, in this country especially, they are themselves such artificial products that their sentiments are compounded of a small element of individual observation and consciousness and a very large one of acquired associations. This will be less and less the case, but it will remain true to a great extent as long as social institutions do not admit the same free development of originality in women which is possible to men. When that time comes, and not before, we shall see, and not merely hear, as much as it is necessary to know of the nature of women, and the adaptation of other things to it. I have dwelt so much on the difficulties which at present obstruct any real knowledge by men of the true nature of women, because in this as in so many other things, opinio copiae inter maximus causas inopiae est and there is little chance of reasonable thinking on the matter when people flatter themselves that they perfectly understand a subject of which most men know absolutely nothing, and of which it is at present impossible that any man, or all men taken together, should have knowledge which can qualify them to lay down the law to women as to what is, or is not, their vocation. Happily, no such knowledge is necessary for any practical purpose connected with the position of women in relation to society and life. For, according to all the principles involved in modern society, the question rests with women themselves, to be decided by their own experience, and by the use of their own faculties. There are no means of finding what either one person or many can do but by trying and no means by which any one else can discover for them what it is for their happiness to do or leave undone. One thing we may be certain of, that what is contrary to women's nature to do, they never will be made to do by simply giving their nature free play. The anxiety of mankind to interfere in behalf of nature, for fear lest nature should not succeed in effecting its purpose, is an altogether unnecessary solicitude. What women by nature cannot do, it is quite superfluous to forbid them from doing. What they can do, but not so well as the men who are their competitors, competition suffices to exclude from them. Since nobody asks for protective duties and bounties in favor of women, 
it is only asked that the present bounties and protective duties in favor of men should be recalled if women have a greater natural inclination for some things than for others there is no need of laws or social inculcation to make the majority of them do the former in preference to the latter whatever women's services are most wanted for the free play of competition will hold out the strongest inducements to them to undertake and as the words imply they are most wanted for the things for which they are most fit by the apportionment of which to them the collective faculties of the two sexes can be applied on the whole with the greatest sum of valuable result the general opinion of men is supposed to be that the natural vocation of a woman is that of a wife and mother i say is supposed to be because judging from acts from the whole of the present constitution of society one might infer that their opinion was the direct contrary they might be supposed to think that the alleged natural vocation of women was of all things the most repugnant to their nature inasmuch that if they are free to do anything else if any other means of living or occupation of their time and faculties is open which has any chance of appearing desirable to them there will not be enough of them who will be willing to accept the conditions said to be natural to them if this is the real opinion of men in general it would be well that it should be spoken out i should like to hear somebody openly enunciating the doctrine it is necessary to society that women should marry and produce children they will not do so unless they are compelled therefore it is necessary to compel them the merits of the case would then be clearly defined it would be exactly that of the slaveholders of south carolina and louisiana it is necessary that cotton and sugar should be grown white men cannot produce them negroes will not for any wages which we choose to give ergo they must be compelled an illustration still closer to the point is that of impressment sailors must absolutely be had to defend the country it often happens that they will not voluntarily enlist therefore there must be the power of forcing them how often has this logic been used and but for one flaw in it without doubt it would have been successful up to this day but it is open to the retort first pay the sailors the honest value of their labor when you have made it as well worth their while to serve you as to work for other employers you will have no more difficulty than others have in obtaining their services to this there is no logical example except i will not and as people are now not only ashamed but are not desirous to rob the laborer of his hire impressment is no longer advocated those who attempt to force women into marriage by closing all other doors against them lay themselves open to a similar retort if they mean what they say their opinion must evidently be that men do not render the married condition so desirable to women as to induce them to accept it for its own recommendations it is not a sign of one's thinking the boon one offers very attractive when one allows only hobson's choice that or none and here i believe is the clue to the feelings of those men who have a real antipathy to the equal freedom of women i believe they are afraid not lest women should be unwilling to marry for i do not think that any one in reality has that apprehension 
but lest they should insist that marriage should be on equal conditions lest all women of spirit and capacity should prefer doing almost anything else not in their own eyes degrading rather than marry when marrying is giving themselves a master and a master too of all their earthly possessions and truly if this consequence were necessarily incident to marriage i think that the apprehension would be very well founded i agree in thinking it probable that few women capable of anything else would unless under an irresistible entrainment rendering them for the time insensible to anything but itself choose such a lot when any other means were open to them of filling a conventionally honourable place in life and if men are determined that the law of marriage shall be a law of despotism they are quite right in point of mere policy in leaving to women only hobson's choice but in that case all that has been done in the modern world to relax the chains on the minds of women has been a mistake they never should have been allowed to receive a literary education women who read much more women who write are in the existing constitution of things a contradiction and a disturbing element and it was wrong to bring women up with any acquirements but those of an autolisk or of a domestic servant End of chapter 1, part 3